Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome back to the New Books in Indian Religions podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Raj Balkaran. More about me at rajbalkaran.com. More importantly, my guest today is Swami Medananda Ayon Maharaj, who is a monk of the Ramakrishna Order and Senior Research Fellow in Philosophy at the Ramakrishna Institute of Moral and Spiritual Education in Mysore, India. Um, Swami Medananda, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. You know, we touched on this in our previous conversation, but uh, I, I imagine there will have been a number of, of, of new listeners since then. So would you mind sharing a little bit about your journey? Your, you know, uh, exceedingly, we live in a world where the lines between East and West are, are, are blurred and perhaps we're never, uh, we're never more than conceptions to begin with. But tell us a bit about your journey um, you know, where you were raised, how it is you, be, you came to, to become ordained as, as a Hindu monk. Would you mind sharing a bit about that? Sure, sure. Um, so I, I was born and raised in Boston in the U.S. And um, my parents are Bengali. So I grew up in a kind of, in two worlds, right? Because um, I was going to normal public schools in Boston with yeah, ethnically mis- mixed students and teachers. And at the same time, there's a kind of vast and growing Bengali community in Boston. And so I, a lot of my social life was actually um, in that community as well, that Bengali community. I actually went to Bengali school on Sundays. The Bengali families rented out a, a hall. And so every Sunday I would go from age, I think like six to 13 to learn how to read and write Bengali basically. So that's, it's, it was, I'm really grateful now that I did that. At the time I found it boring. And now, I mean, I'll get to that later when, you know, when I get to how I became a monk and now I'm living in India, but in any case. Um, so yeah, I, I was born and raised in Boston. I did my undergraduate education at the University of California, Berkeley. And I spent a year at Oxford University as well, um, studying both English literature and philosophy. Um, and then I did my, I decided to do my PhD at Berkeley as well. Um, and I spent a year as a Fulbright scholar in Berlin at, at Humboldt University. And my focus was on German aesthetics actually uh, for my PhD work. And at the same time at Berkeley, actually, so it was within one semester of graduate school, so that was 2003, within one semester, I just knew I'm gonna complete my PhD and then I'm gonna to move to India and be a monk. That was like, it was like my six year plan basically. Um, and a lot, and I told my friends cause I'm very open. And so, and they, they just laughed at me like, no, you're not serious about that. And I said, no, you'll see, I'm, I'm quite serious. Um, and I told my parents, they didn't believe me either. And uh, that was before I even read a word of the teachings of Vivekananda or Sri Ramakrishna, which is the tradition that I belong to now. But I, I read the Bhagavad Gita in uh, Sri Aurobindo's English translation. And that was very inspiring to me and it really resonated with me, Uh, especially the idea that to achieve certain kind of fulfillment in life, you have to renounce ordinary worldly pleasures. That really struck home with me. Um, Yeah, anyway, so so, um, I finished my PhD at Berkeley. Then I got spiritual initiation from, oh, sorry, and I kind of skipped ahead. So during my PhD, I, I started studying the, the works and the life and teachings of Sri Ramakrishna and Swami Vivekananda. And then I said, my ideas about spiritual life became a lot clearer to me. Um, and then I thought, you know, this is the right spiritual tradition for me. One of the main reasons is because from an early age, so from my late teens, I was very interested in religion, but I was also very skeptical. I, you know, I was kind of, uh, philosopher in the making. And so I asked myself, you know, if religion is true, 
it must be all important. But then the question is, there's so many religions in the world, which one should I accept? And just because I was born into a Hindu family doesn't mean that I should accept Hinduism. That wouldn't be rational, right? That, that's the way I'm just trying to explain my thinking at the time. And so what I did is I started systematically studying the world's religious scriptures. I read the Bible, I read um, Dhammapada, you know, one of the Buddhist scriptures. I started reading the Quran, I read the Bhagavad Gita. Um, and I started asking myself, you know, the, first of all, just acquainting myself with the different religions. And then one really serious question came, if one of these religions is true, then the other religions can't be true. So which one is true? That was, a, again, this either or kind of thinking that I was locked into at the time. Uh, but it was only after I started reading the life and teachings of Sri Ramakrishna and Swami Vivekananda. Sri Ramakrishna, of course, he practiced spiritual um, sadhanas, practices in a number of different religions, in Christianity, Islam, a number of different Hindu traditions like Vaishnavism, Advaita Vedanta, Shakta Tantrism. And he came to the conclusion on the basis of his own spiritual experiences that all these different religious paths lead to the same goal of God realization. So that really deeply resonated with me and it, and it gave me a kind of rational framework for being able to root myself in a Hindu tradition, spiritual tradition, while at the same time accepting um, all other religious traditions as well. And then after I got my PhD in 2009, I um, bought a one-way ticket to India and I came out here and uh, I did a six-month spiritual pilgrimage, basically. I stayed in many different ashramas throughout the country. Um, I went to the Himalayas, I went to Kanyakumari, which is at the southern tip of India, um, Sringeri, uh, Tiruvannamalai, Rishikesh, and a bunch of other places. And then I decided um, I'm going to join the Ramakrishna order. Um, and with the Ramakrishna order, there are many centers in India, but uh, a university had just come up called Vivekananda University. Um, it was founded in 2006, I believe, five or six. And so this is 2010. And so I decided to join there. My thinking was along the lines of the Bhagavad Gita. The Bhagavad Gita is always talking about swabhavaniyatam karma. Do the work that is in accordance with your own law of being, you know, with what makes you tick. And if you do it in a selfless way, that, that work itself will become a, a potent spiritual practice. It becomes a kind of karma yoga. So I thought to myself, I've done all this academic training, I've studied German philosophy. And by the way, I studied Sanskrit for two years at Berkeley as well. So I had a little Sanskrit foundation as well. And so I decided that if I join in Vivekananda University, I can sort of pivot toward Indian philosophy and uh, cross-cultural philosophy and Vedanta. And I can make my academic research uh, an integral part of my spiritual practice, basically. And the rest is history. Yeah. Uh, fascinating story. Thank you for sharing. Um, <laughs> uh, we have uh, quite different paths, and yet uh, perhaps similar in a certain sense. I grew up in, uh, I joke, the holy city of Toronto, the, the, the world's multicultural mecca. Uh, wonderful city. Didn't begin to appreciate how, how, uh, how, uh, I, <laughs> how diverse and rich and lively the city is uh, until I moved away and moved back. But grew up in Toronto, was a double diasporic Hindu backdrop. I was, uh, I did well in school. I was fairly bright. I was essentially uh, a spirited rationalist. You know, I had my own spiritual musings, uh, deeply philosophical. But for me, um, ritual and, 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 and uh, myth was superstition, you know. This is sort of the ethos and the lens through which, through, through which I grew up. And then something shifted, <laughs> probably by the pressures of Purva Janma, who knows, but something shifted uh, in my early 20s. And um, all of a sudden, I was waking up and doing sadhana every morning. This is before I found my guru, actually. Um, something radically shifted. All kinds of lifestyle changes occurred. And I very seriously considered renouncing. Very much so. Um, ended up going back to school, discovering Hindu studies. At, at that time, I had dropped out of a English and philosophy degree. <laughs> a couple of years of that before that. And then this, this uh, spiritual awakening began within me. And <laughs> I discovered Hindu studies the day it started. And there's a recent podcast by, uh, with me speaking with Gillian McCann. She was the instructor 18 years ago, actually. Um, and through that course, I met my guru and the rest is history. And interestingly enough, it was my, my, um, my very spiritual, very sort of ascetic in many ways guru, who was more or less an urban sadhu, <laughs> who 
helped me to realize that um, in my particular case, I've been there, done that. And the renouncing lives are, this is a life in which work in the world is what I need to accomplish. So fascinating path. Thank you for sharing. Now, enough of the biographies. Um, you have produced a fascinating book on, uh, not surprisingly, a character uh, at the heart of the Ramakrishna, uh, Mart uh, Swami Vivekananda. The book's called Swami Vivekananda's Vedantic Cosmopolitanism. Um, what's the book about? Wait, you know what? Let me rephrase that. How did you come about writing this book? Yeah, so I guess I have to talk about my previous book, actually. So I, I and um, I think we had talked about this maybe in a previous podcast, but um, my previous book is called my second book is called Infinite Paths to Infinite Reality, Sri Ramakrishna and Cross-Cultural Philosophy of Religion. That was published by Oxford University Press in 2018. Um, that was my first book, um, really trying to, trying to think through and provide the philosophical and, theosophical and the theological foundations for the particular spiritual tradition that I belong to. We call it the Ramakrishna Vivekananda Spiritual Tradition. Um, but that book focused on the teachings of Sri Ramakrishna and their philosophical implications and their relevance to contemporary philosophical and theological debates. So I want to do, so it's a kind of logical follow-up to that book, this current book, Swami Vivekananda's Vedantic Cosmopolitanism. This book focuses squarely on Swami Vivekananda's philosophical teachings and their contemporary relevance, but in the light of my previous work, basically. So I'm trying to show that there's a very strong philosophical and theological continuity in the thought of Sri Ramakrishna and Swami Vivekananda, which is contentious. I mean, that's a controversial claim, and there are other scholars who claim that there's a pretty strong discontinuity between Sri Ramakrishna and his chief disciple, Vivekananda. In many ways, it's always struck me that these figures, um, they complement each other greatly. And... Uh, as someone who has a very worldly path uh, through a very rational paradigm, having had a guru who was a complete uh, <laughs> a mystic uh, tantrika, I can, I can relate to both the complementarity and the tension between these two um, seminal figures. Um, uh, Vedantic cosmopolitanism? What is this? Yeah, thanks. So in the study of Vivekananda, there are two, I would say there are two dominant approaches. So one of them is there's this tendency to see Vivekananda's thought as more or less following the philosophy of Shankara's Advaita Vedanta. There's a whole slew of scholars and previous monks in, in my order who have argued that basically that, yeah, he's, he's teaching the same Advaita Vedanta repackaged for modern times with a bit of a kind of an ethical twist. Um, but it's basically this in line with Shankara's tradition. And then there's this other dominant approach, uh, which I, which might be called the Neo-Vedantic or the Neo-Hindu approach, which was inaugurated by Paul Hacker, but which is, it's continues to be followed by a number of different scholars, like Andrew Fort and a number of others, Wilhelm Halkfuss to a certain extent. Um, and this approach is almost the opposite. And the, the argument is that Vivekananda taught a Vedanta, which ostensibly is supposed to be a kind of homegrown Indian spiritual tradition. But in fact, in a number of important ways, the way that he taught Vedanta was influenced strongly by Western thought currents when he was introduced to them uh, during his visits to the US and Europe, basically, in the late 18, in the 1890s. And so with regard to your question, what is Vedantic cosmopolitanism? What do I mean by that? What I understand by Vedantic cosmopolitanism is I see it as a third and a better, I think, an alternative hermeneutic paradigm for understanding what's most important and most valuable uh, in the thought of Swami Vivekananda. So notice that in it, with the, with, that both of these dominant approaches, right, the, the Shankarite approach and the Neo-Vedantic approach, the Neo-Hindu approach, both of them tend to see Vivekananda as a kind of passive agent, right? That on, from, from the Shankara standpoint, it's he was passively sort of following the Shankara, the Shankara tradition of Advaita Vedanta. From the Neo-Vedantic standpoint, he's, he was passively influenced by Western thought currents, right? Vedanta cosmopolitan means 
cosmopolitanism means in the first place that instead of treating them as a passive sort of um, almost like a billiard ball being pushed around by different forces around him, seeing him as an active agent in his own right, as an active, creative, agential, philosophical thinker in his own right, who was fully capable and able to actively engage with thought currents, not just in India, but throughout the world. Um, and so the epigraph to my book is taken from a letter to one of his brother disciples. It's a short, he wrote it in Bangla, but uh, the translation is, um, give the exact thing but um anyway but the basic idea is my motto is to learn whatever is great wherever i may find it perfect thank you you did your homework yeah exactly so that that to me embodies this cosmopolitan attitude of it doesn't matter what country it's from but if it's a good idea i'll absorb it and i'll take it and i'll try to assimilate it into my own thinking basically so many, many fascinating threads there. Um, certainly, um, it, 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 figures like Vivekananda, um, the brilliance of what they do is that they um, extend, uh, um, engage, uh, tr celebrate tradition. But they're, they're, the extent to which they're innovating and their originality and the force of their personality is ironically what perpetuates and disseminates tradition while it's innovating it. So there's, there's, a, there's a really interesting tension there. How is your book structured? Yeah, so it's, it's uh, about 430 pages and it has 10 chapters and four divided into four sections. Um, so the first three chapters comprise the first section. The first section is called Integral Advaita. Um, I'll explain each set. Oh, let me just go through the structure first, then I can we can go into details of each. So first section, chapters one through three is integral advaita. Chapters four through six is the second section. It's called the experiential basis of religion. Chapters seven through eight um, concern the third, it's a third section, it's called faith and reason. And chapters nine and ten comprise the fourth section, which is called consciousness. And I especially focus on the hard problem of consciousness. Um, so would you like me to discuss them or, I mean, you can, you know, have follow-up questions. Yeah. So, um, for, so we can start with the, with the first section. So the first section, the first part is called integral Advaita, um, the first three chapters. And my main arguments are twofold. So the first concerns, how should we understand the precise nature of Vivekananda's Vedantic philosophy? There's absolutely no dispute that he was a Vedantin, that he taught, especially Advaita Vedanta. But there's a lot of scholarly controversy about what the precise nature of the Advaita Vedanta that he taught was. To what extent does it follow Shankara's Advaita Vedanta? And to what extent does Vivekananda's Vedantic philosophy deviate from, if at all, from his guru Sri Ramakrishna's philosophy. So these are some of the big scholarly controversies. What I argue in this first section of my book is that the kind of Advaita Vedanta that, Ramakrishna, that Swami Vivekananda taught comes much closer to the world affirming Advaitic philosophy of his guru Sri Ramakrishna than to the world denying Advaita Vedanta of Shankaracharya. Um, and so chapter two is this very long chapter where um, I, I try to make this argument in great detail. And some of the main, I'll just uh, summarize the basic ideas, the basic arguments. So I claim that number one, with regard to the nature of ultimate reality, whereas Shankara understands the ultimate reality as only nirguna, which means attributeless or impersonal, non-dual pure consciousness, Swami Vivekananda, following his guru Sri Krishna, conceives the ultimate reality as both impersonal and personal. At several places, he says, we Hindus believe in a personal, impersonal God. So, and he has many other statements to that effect. Um, number two concerns the status of this universe. Is it real or is it unreal? And while Shankara says that from the ultimate standpoint, the universe is non-existent, Vivekananda follows Sri Ramakrishna and claiming that this world is a real manifestation of God. Um, so that's why chapter two is, I called it, I, I start with a quotation, the, the deification of the world. This is from one of his lectures where he says, Vedanta does not in reality denounce the world. It actually teaches the deification of the world. See God in everything, right? And then third has to do with spiritual practice. According to Shankara, the only yoga, the only spiritual practice that leads directly to liberation is jnana yoga, the yoga of knowledge. 
Whereas Swami Vivekananda explicitly teaches that all four of the main yogas, which he taught, Raja Yoga, Bhakti Yoga, Karma Yoga, and Jnana Yoga, all four of these are direct and independent means to moksha. So th these are the basic the, uh, arguments that I develop in, in chapter two. And chapter three is an important chapter because as far as I'm aware, I'm the first scholar to be making this argument. Um, this concerns Swami Vivekananda's views on the harmony of religions. He often taught the harmony of religions. That's a phrase that he uses fairly often. But there's a lot of controversy about how he taught the harmony of religions. What kind of harmonizing was it? And the mainstream, I, I would say the dominant scholarly interpretation of his views is that even though he's, he claimed to embrace all the world's religion and put them on an equal footing, in fact, he was an Advaitic hierarchical inclusivist. That's a technical term, but it's pretty simple to understand. He, he often taught that there are three stages of Vedanta, that Dvaita, the stage of dualism, will ultimately culminate in the next stage, which is Vishta Dvaita, qualified non-dualism, but then ultimately the highest stage, the highest standpoint is, lo and behold, Advaita Vedanta. So these scholars claim that even when he's teaching the harmony of religions, he ends up bringing in this three-stage, this three-tier framework and ultimately saying that, yeah, all religions lead to the same goal, but that goal is understood as an Advaitic goal. And so he ends up putting non-Advaitic spiritual and religious paths on a lower footing. He doesn't say that they're not useful, that they're not valid, but he says that they're good, but they're good as stepping stones toward the highest goal of Advaita, Advaita Vedanta or Advaita. And my argument is that what this interpretation misses is the way that his thinking about the harmony of religions evolved in the 1890s. And I, I argue especially that there's an important shift that happens in 1890, in, I think I place it at late 1890, oh no, in the middle of 1895 basis. Um, so for about nine to 10 months, from 1894 to 1895 to early 1895, Swami Vivekananda did in fact harmonize the religions on the basis of this hierarchical Advaitic framework. And where he basically says explicitly, all the world religions can be harmonized on the basis of this framework, Advaita and certain forms of Buddhism. He includes, I think, Yogacara Buddhism. He includes them at the Advaita phase, the highest. But then he says, yeah, but Christianity and Islam are great too, because, and we can, they, they correspond to the dualistic phase. And so there's a very clear kind of hierarchy there. But what I argue is that, and I do this on the basis of a diachronic study of his lectures on the harmony of religions all the way up to 1901, that starting in 1895 and absolutely with 100% consistency, as far as I can tell, he just stops teaching the harmony of religions starting, I, I think I placed the date at May, 1895. He just stops harmonizing the religions on the basis of this three stages of Vedanta framework. And instead, he starts teaching from 1895 all the way up to his death in 1902 that the different religions of the world can be harmonized on the basis of the four yogas. He says that every world religion corresponds to one or more of the yogas, whether it's karma yoga or bhakti yoga, et cetera, et cetera. And then he, the second step in the argument is, and each yoga is a direct and independent path to moksha. That's something I had already mentioned to you earlier. So combining these two theses, you end up with a very robust form of religious pluralism and what I actually call a religious cosmopolitanism. The idea is that he's no longer putting Advaita Vedanta on a higher footing or on a higher pedestal than all the other paths. He's now saying that each, any one of these paths is equally equipped to take you to salvation. So that's, that's an overview of um, part one, this integral Advaita. It's fascinating. Um, so many so many important points you've raised. What comes, what strikes me as quite resonant is this, um, you know, Hinduism, Hinduism is what it's, it's sort of this umbrella term for a, a colossal amount of time and culture and thought and philosophy and theology and history. And so there's these huge movements in themselves, entire religions, right? So, um, Upanishadic Hinduism or Vedantic Hinduism, in this case, um, offers this this profound, exalted spiritual critique of materiality, um, and this this sort of diagnosis that um, the, the, the 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 problem of humanity is the identification with matter and 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 the the incessant um, um, rebirth. 
in this realm. And the solution, well, this is the way out. And, and of course, Buddhism and Jainism are no different. All of the darshanas will say, this is the way out. They have slightly different paths, breadcrumbs they'll leave for you to find your way out. But they all say there is a way out and getting out is important because here's the problem. Uh, this realm is, is problematic uh, at, at, at best and entirely illusory at worst non-existent in an absolute sense. And so uh, the next sort of general uh, vast epoch of, of Indic religiosity that we see crystallized in the Sanskrit epics and, 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 and flourishing in the Puranas is this pull towards poverty, this pull towards the worldly, this, 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 this acceptance of nivriti and, and, and the, the ascetic ideals, this, the, this internalization of moksha, karma, samsara, but then the, yes, but you need to fight the war. Or, or you know, the, 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 the celebration of this world in some sense. And one of, the, one of my great um, interests in the Devi Mahatmya is when you look at it as a cosmology, the way you might look at Genesis, it sets up a, a very particular world that's very, very different from the Vedantic worldview. It's a world in which the supreme divine principle is part and parcel of matter. Prakriti is, you know, uh, is is the absolute through the grace of the Devi, through the play of the Devi. And yeah, so, no, no, that's great. I mean, the one thing I would say, though, is that I, I think you find that in the Upanishads pretty strongly. Um, you know, if, if, if we don't let ourselves get influenced by Shankara's interpretation and we just read the Upanishads straight, what we get again, again, again and again is Sarvam Kalvidam Brahma. Everything you see here is Brahma. Taittiri Upanishad says, Annam Brahmeti Vijana. Know that matter itself is Brahma. This is one of Aurobindo's most favorite, you know, uh, statement. So he has it in the life divine as one of his epigraphs. So I think that you find the seeds in the original Vedanta of this kind of world affirming kind of spirituality that doesn't reject the world. It, it rejects the world minus God, minus Brahman, right? But if you can see the world as a manifestation of Brahman, then there's no need to renounce, right? So then you get in the Ishopanishad, through renunciation of inner egoism and desire, you should enjoy this world. But you enjoy the world precisely because you've divested yourself of material attachments, right? And you can really enjoy the world as God. Yeah, they're, they're even in the Upanishadic view, perhaps, that the world is a manifestation of the divine. Nevertheless, it's an ascetic ideology. It's, it's sort of this, this um, I mean, you're a renunciant, right? You're a monk. So this this discourse. Yeah, but look at so I'm doing a podcast with you, right, on a laptop, and so it's an no, interesting kind of. No, what I mean to say is that this discourse, this message, was written for whom and by whom, and in what the Upanishads were studied by whom, taken up by whom, not householders. Yeah, but again, there's some controversy. I mean, we don't know, right? The historical questions are always tricky in, in with regard to India. But you know, who are these Upanishadic rishis? But one one line of understanding is that they were rishis who actually married. They were householders, and many of them were not Brahmins. They were Kshatriyas, and so I mean, I think it's actually it's a little bit complicated on that. Well, it's definitely complicated, but without question, there's an aesthetic ideology at play, right? Which is it, there's a call to. It depends on what you mean by asceticism. And, and so if you, you know, even Gita is ascetic in the sense of saying you have to renounce desires, right? That's, you know, so again and again, Bhagavan Krishna is saying you have to renounce, you have to renounce desires. I mean, Tyaga is one of the most common words occurring in the Bhagavad Gita. So that's another form of asceticism. He says that to Arjuna, who says, I want to take up the begging bowl. Like, I'm, I'm yeah. done. I'm going to renounce I want out. Yeah. And Krishna says, I think very innovatively, no, 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 no. Renunciation is interior. So even Arjuna in that moment has this perception that, that okay, the right thing to do is to take up a begging bowl and renounce. So there's whether it's historical or merely um, ideological, there is this strand of Hinduism, definitely. which can going, be considered, going back to Sankhya, yeah, definitely. right, Sankhya which can be considered world denying, and so, uh, and so, certainly everything that's being said needs to be um, problematized, and everything that can be said of the Hindu world, uh, the opposite yeah, can also yeah, be said qualified. to be true. Yeah, yeah, exactly. What I mean to say is certainly, that, and perhaps we're too in it to see it, but certainly there is this, uh, for lack of a better word, world eschewing, world denying 
uh, strand to Indic thought that's prevalent in its ethos. And I, I, I say this so, so as to agree with you that what Vivekananda is doing is very, very different from what Shankara was doing insofar as it's all about service and it's all about engaging the world and working with people and teaching people wherever they're at in their evolution or social circumstance. So I think that's a very important point that you're making. Yeah, so the only reason I brought up the Upanishads, this is one thing that I I talk about in chapter two, is that one of the things that Swami Vivekananda said again and again is that we need to reinterpret the, the original Vedantic scriptures, the Upanishads, the Bhagavad Gita and the Brahma Sutra, in the light of the life and teachings of Sri Ramakrishna, rather than in the light of any of the traditional Acharyas, including Shankaracharya. So he says it's a great mistake that we're so colored whenever we read texts like the Upanishads and Bhagavad Gita, our interpretation is so colored by the great Acharyas like Shankaracharya that we're not able to kind of take these texts on their own terms. And so he said, we need to independently try to understand the meaning of these texts. And the best help in that project is to read them in the light of the harmonizing spirit of Sri Ramakrishna. Yeah, so that's just... And, and is it not an interesting, intriguing, interesting um, telling that Ramakrishna certainly uh, was an upasaka or devotee of the divine feminine of, of Kali. He was, he was a priest at the temple of Kali. So it, I think it's, it's, it's a fascinating or perhaps even um, provocative idea that um, the, 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 the quote-unquote correct understanding of Vedanta lies within one who is in mystical communion with the, with, with the goddess or, you know, yeah, venerating the goddess. The, the, the important thing, you're right, except that not just that he's uh, in mystical communion with the divine goddess, but he was also initiated in a sannyasa by... Totapuri, an Advaita, a wandering Advaitin monk, and attained Nirvikalpa Samadhi. So he had multiple gurus, and each from each one of them, he realized God through a different spiritual path. And the beauty of Sri Ramakrishna is that he embraced and affirmed all of these different paths as leading to the same goal. So I see Swami Vivekananda's integral Vedanta, integral Advaita, as encompassing and embracing all of these different spiritual paths, basically, and different conceptions of ultimate reality. Who do you think would most benefit from the book? Who's the book for? It's a good question. Um, primarily, it's an academic book published by Oxford. So this is not you know light reading on a train. Um, it's intended primarily for scholars and students, but in a number of academic fields, I would say. So not just philosophy, but Hindu studies, theology, um, uh, re- yeah, religious studies. And um, I would also say, I mean, I just gave a, a book launch talk uh, for the Vedanta New York Society um, headed by Swami Sarvapiyanandaji. And that talk was addressed to, I mean, the audience was completely you know, non-academic. So it's many thousands of people who watched that. And I think that there's, I think certain chapters, especially the first three chapters of my book, and I would say chapter eight of my book are the most accessible for uh, non-academics. And I think um, there's a lot there, especially for devotees in our tradition, but just sadhaka, spiritual aspirants um, in Hindu traditions, but also in other traditions, other religious traditions. I think they can also benefit from at least certain chapters in the book. I don't want to say that, you know, there are some more technical chapters, like the chapters on consciousness and on the epistemic value of spiritual experience. Um, that's, that's a bit heavy going for non-academics, but I would say chapters one, two, and three, which concern is integral Advaita, and then chapter eight concerns his views on faith. And so these are all very much relevant to daily spiritual practice, and I think they're more accessible um, to people who have some background in Indian um, religion and philosophy. So what is Swami Vivekananda's view on faith? Yeah, so that's, as I said, it's chapter eight. Um, there's a lot there, but I'll just, the, the, the main thing I'll talk about is that he introduces this really novel stadial conception of faith as consisting in three stages. Um, and he says the first stage, I mean, you normally, when we think about faith, if somebody asks you, do you, do you have faith in God? What they mean is, do you believe in God? Right. Vivekananda separates faith from belief in a really interesting way. He says, faith can mean belief at a certain stage, but it doesn't, faith doesn't begin with belief. Faith begins with what he calls intellectual assent. This is the exact term he uses in certain places in his lectures, which is very interesting. So he says, intellectual assent is 
sort of intellectually saying, yeah, like I'm open to the possibility that God exists. Like I don't, I don't see why not. Why, why God? You know, I don't see why I should be an atheist. That's that. That's sort of what he means by intellectual assent, a kind of openness to believing in God's existence. And he says the vast majority of people in the world who claim to be religious believers, in fact, are not yet believers. That's the second stage, which I'll get to in a second. But they're actually at this first stage of what he calls intellectual assent to the truths of their religion. And there are two types of intellectual assenters. One is the insincere people, which make up the majority of religious people in, in all traditions, more or less, who claim to believe in their religion, but do nothing to actually try to um, attain the goals taught by their religion. And they don't, their lives don't reflect the, their so-called religious beliefs. So that's, these are what he calls insincere intellectual dissenters. Then he says there's a small minority of people at this first stage of religious faith who are sincere intellectual dissenters. They're open to the possibility of believing in God. They're honest enough to admit that they don't yet believe in God. But they're sincerely striving as spiritual aspirants to mold their lives in accordance with their religious principles. Notice I'm not saying beliefs because they're not yet believers. Okay, so these, after prolonged practice um, of their, you know, of, of whatever their spiritual practices are at this first stage of intellectual ascent, these people, by the grace of God, that's usually what he says, they can ascend to the second stage of faith, which is faith as belief. It's in the second stage that the person, that that intellectual ascent actually matures into a full-blown belief in God. So this is a really interesting philosophical claim. And this is linked to an idea in contemporary epistemology. The, the, the doctrine is called doxastic involuntarism. The, it's a fancy term, it just it's, means something simple. The idea is that I can't just decide to believe for instance, that the capital of India is Hyderabad. I can't do it. I mean, if I tried to, I would fail, right? So what Vivekananda is saying is it's like that. I can't just decide to believe that God exists. That's not the way that belief works. So instead, it's something that a belief will spontaneously arrive, uh, arise in us in the course of our spiritual practices if we're doing things right, right? So that's when we can move from the first to the second stage. It's not a voluntary step where I say, I'm now gonna believe in God, but rather over the course, usually of many lifetimes, right? Because he believes in rebirth, he's a Vedantin. In the course of many lifetimes, eventually the jiva, the soul, the person will eventually evolve from the first stage of intellectual ascent to the second stage of belief. And this is another interesting point that he makes. He says, what is the sure sign that somebody really believes that God exists? He gives a nice example. He says, this is taken from his Guru Sri Ramakrishna actually. He says, imagine that there's a thief in a room and somebody comes to his room and says, hey, did you know that there's this giant chest of invaluable gold and other kinds of gems, precious gems? And then Vivekananda asks, what do you think the thief would do? Don't you think he wouldn't be able to sleep at night, that he would spend all his waking hours and all his waking time trying to get to that other room? He says, in the same way, somebody who truly believes that God exists will spend every waking breath trying to realize God. All right, so that's the second stage. And then he says, but that's not the end of it. That's not the end of the journey of faith, according to Vivekananda. He says that as you deepen that, that longing for God, that rest that restlessness for god eventually by god's grace you attain the highest stage of faith the third stage which he calls realization so it's not just about believing in god but actually realizing god that's the culmination of faith that's the end point of faith that's what every sincere spiritual aspect should be striving to attain ultimately that's where you know just as i'm talking to you now and i know that i'm talking to you because i can see you i can perceive you these great souls, Vivekananda and you know, all the great religious mystics throughout the world, they said that I perceive God, I realize God. You know, Sri would say, I talk to God on a daily basis and, and I feel her, the divine mother, more intensely than I, than I feel your presence now. She was speaking to Vivekananda. Yeah, so, so that's the, a kind of general overview of the three stages of faith according to Vivekananda. Lovely. Um, uh, <laughs> there are so many interesting points there. Um, let me ask you this. In the, over the course of this research, uh, 
what surprised you, if anything? Or did you did you plod along, sort of um, crafting the arguments you expected to, and discovering what you expected to, or were there elements that really threw you for a loop, or you found remarkable in some way? Yeah, I mean, well, a good example of of what surprised me is chapter eight. Actually, I mean, uh, there are a few things like, you know, when I when I started studying his 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 writings and lectures very deeply, I started finding a lot of really startling and radical ideas like faith cannot be equated with belief. I mean, that's a pretty radical idea, especially in a Western context where faith has been equated with belief for millennia, more or less. Um, and uh, uh, there are many other things. So um, the, the other thing that, I mean, so, you know, I'm a philosopher and I've studied a lot of Western analytic philosophy, but this book gave me the opportunity to dive more deeply into contemporary epistemology, contemporary philosophy of religion, contemporary philosophy of mind, debates about consciousness, debates in philosophy of science. And what I found again and again, as I delved into the absolutely latest cutting edge Western analytic philosophical literature, I found again and again that a lot of the views resonate with Vivekananda's views. So for instance, the chapters nine and 10, where I argue um, that Vivekananda provides a novel solution to what David Chalmers has called the hard problem of consciousness. So there, I think he's really on the cutting edge. Just in the past decade, I would say, some philosophers of mind have started to defend what's called cosmopsychism, which is the view that there is one, there's a single cosmic consciousness from which all individual level consciousnesses, your consciousness, my consciousness, everything else derives. And this is exactly what I claim Vivekananda argued, you know, in the 1890s, except from a Vedantic standpoint. I have to chuckle at the idea that in in the <laughs> in the 2020s we have academic articles who are who are who are postulating that <laughs> that there is a cosmic consciousness. <laughs> yeah, there's a from which we, from which we all draw. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think to and myself, psychism. wait a minute. This is a pretty old idea. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. And I, yeah, it, it's a sign of the times that now slowly, I mean, in light of movements toward liberalism and globalism. So for instance, the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy, in the entry on panpsychism, now there's this kind of nod to, there's a recognition of the fact that panpsychism doesn't start with David Chalmers and you know, these kinds of Western philosophers, but it goes back to the Upanishads and these, you know, the other great Eastern scriptures. And the Greeks, actually, yeah. Say more about um, how you view Vivekananda as contributing to our understanding of consciousness. Say more about what you say in chapter eight. Yeah, so, all right. So first of all, let me start. So what, what is the hard problem of consciousness? So I mentioned that David Chalmers who's a professor at NYU. He, he, didn't, he was not the first to introduce the hard problem of consciousness. He was the first to, to coin that term. Okay, but the, that idea was there for uh, many, you know, centuries before before Chalmers came around and announced it in 1995 or six. But the, the idea is the question is a very simple one, but it's a very very difficult one to answer. The question is, what the heck is conscious experience, and where does it come from? Conscious experience, what does it mean? That first personal sort of what it is like to taste coffee, what it is like to feel pain when somebody hits me in the knee, you know. Where does that come from in a world that, you know, it's, it's, it's a world of matter. How in the world can conscious experience arise from matter? Now, that's the way that the question is usually formulated, but that's already kind of question begging in a certain sense, because then you're presupposing that consciousness comes from matter, which a lot of spiritual traditions, um, you know, disagree with. So I like to formulate the hard problem of conscious in a, in a broader way that's, that's not question begging. And so the question would just be, what is the nature of conscious experience and where does it come from? I mean, that would be the idea, right? Or just individual conscious experience without even positing anything about matter. And there's a whole slew of answers to the hard problem of consciousness. In the past hundred years on the Western analytics side, I mean, it would take me a long time just to catalog them, but their answers like Colin McGinn gives the answer. It's a funny answer. It's a kind of non-answer answer, which is called Mysterianism. The answer is, it'll remain, it's, a, it's a mystery how consciousness arises from matter, but, but it does. Just take my word for it, it does, but we can never explain how because our minds are fundamentally limited. So that's one way, but, but that's one approach called Mysterianism. 
there are many others. Um, there are a lot of materialistic ways of explaining conscious experience, which basically claim that consciousness, conscious states are nothing but, or nothing over and above neuronal states, states of the brain, right? The way that neurons fire in the brain. But the problem with all of these materialistic theories of consciousness is what David Chalmers calls the hard problem of conscious, which is that they're never able to explain the qualitative, you know, what the, what's called qualia, which is this kind of what it is like quality of our experiences, right? I mean, they're always going to miss that. There's always an explanatory gap in those kind of materialistic explanations. So just in the past 20 to 30 years um, on the side of Western philosophy, philosophers have started to entertain the possibility that has been you know, discussed for millennia actually in different traditions, um, that consciousness is all pervading and that it's fundamental. So that's what's called, so there are different views, but one of the most um, popular is called panpsychism. Pan means everywhere, psyche, right, means consciousness. So the view that consciousness is all pervasive so that, and it's, it's fundamental so that you don't need to explain where consciousness come from, comes from because consciousness itself is fundamental. You have to explain then how do we come out of consciousness, right? I mean, how, how do tables and chairs and human beings, how do they come out of the, whatever, what, however you posit consciousness. So cosmopsychism posits a single uh, cosmic consciousness from which all the individual consciousness, uh, consciousnesses arise. Um, and I claim that Vivekananda develops a distinctively Vedantic form of cosmopsychism that I call panentheistic cosmopsychism. And it's based on his Vedantic metaphysics. The idea is that God, which is both, as I mentioned earlier, both personal and impersonal, as the personal God, he becomes everything in this universe. So divine consciousness becomes everything in this universe. And because of that, because the only reality then is divine consciousness, you, you, don't know, you no longer need to explain where consciousness comes from because that's just fundamental, it's divine consciousness. But then there is this problem which is called the individuation problem or the decombination problem. The problem is, well, how do we get from the single divine consciousness to you know, Raj Balkaran's consciousness, to Swami Medananda's consciousness, to the consciousness of a dog, and to the consciousness of an ape, to these individual macro level consciousnesses? And so how does that single divine consciousness individuate into multiple consciousnesses that we know, right? These different empirical consciousnesses. And I, I'm not gonna go into the details here because it gets too complicated, but I, I argue that Vivekananda provides a really interesting and novel way of, of solving that individuation problem, explaining from a Vedantic standpoint, how the one divine consciousness becomes all the different individual consciousnesses. Uh, basically through a process of self-limitation. So the divine consciousness playfully limits itself through this individuating principle of maya. And I mean, I think you've studied some Kashmiri Shaivism and Tantra, so I, I think you'll find resonances with Tantra. Again, that's not a coincidence because his guru was, you know, instructed and practiced in the Tantra traditions, but uh, yeah. As coins beneath the sun become heat sources unto themselves. You know, consciousness. So, sorry, can you repeat that? As coins, as as metal objects uh, beneath the sun, the midday sun in Rajasthan, can become heat sources in their own right. Perhaps so too. Individuals can partake in the single source of consciousness, but these are deliberations for another day and another space for those interested uh, in tasting and not describing. <laughs> in a podcast, all he can do is describe. Um, um, what else would you like us to touch on regarding the book? Yeah, so I mean, I can say something about that second part, so chapters four through six, um, the experiential basis of religion. Um, this is another point of serious contention among scholars. So, um, the, so chapter four discusses how Swami Vivekananda tried to defend religion in the late 19th century. So I kind of place him against the backdrop of, of a number of extremely important revolutionary developments like Charles Darwin's Origin of Species, which you know, was throwing Christian theologians into fits because that seemed to directly conflict with their creationism story. Um, 
And in that climate, and also a climate of increasing scientism, so the idea that, so science was increasing in prestige by the day. And many people started thinking that, you know, all of life's most important questions can be answered by the physical sciences, by the natural sciences. So it was in that climate of scientism, of skepticism, um, and of a kind of waning of religious belief and doubt that Vivekananda tried to defend religion uh, not on the basis of dogma, of belief, but on the basis of spiritual experience. So that's why my section is called, that section is called the experiential basis of religion. So he claims that religion deserves to be considered a science just as much as physics or chemistry or mathematics or biology. Why? Because science, all sciences are grounded in experience. And then the next movie makes is to say, but it would be a mistake to restrict experience to only the experience the experiences of our senses, the five senses. And he says that the natural sciences concern themselves with sensory experience, duly extended when necessary. So for instance, astronomy will involve telescopes to see distant stars and planets. So that, but that's still using the faculty of sight, except that it's sort of you know, extended through the telescope. Biologists will also be using the faculty of sight, but then through microscopes, they'll also extend the faculty of sight in certain ways, et cetera, et cetera. But then Vivekananda says religious science is grounded not in sensory experience, but in spiritual experience, right? And then comes a really tough question, which a lot of scholars have taken Vivekananda to task for, like Anantananda Rambachan, he wrote an entire book criticizing Vivekananda's views, and a number of other scholars like C. Mackenzie Brown. What they claim is that, yeah, okay, that's all well and good. Vivekananda claims that religion is a science because it's grounded in spiritual experience. But why the heck should we even believe that spiritual experience is a source of knowledge in the first place? And they say that Vivekananda doesn't give us any good arguments for believing that spiritual experience is a source of knowledge. So the, the technical language that philosophers of religion use and that epistemologists use to frame the same issue is, this is the question, is does spiritual experience have epistemic value? It just means the same thing as you know, is spiritual experience a source of knowledge in the way that, you know, my sense perception of this laptop is a source of knowledge that that provides a reason for me to, to, to believe and to know that I have a laptop in front of me. So does my spiritual experience of God or does my spiritual experience of my own soul, does that justify me in believing or even in knowing that there is a God or that I have a soul separate from the body and separate from the mind? And what I argue in chapters five and six is that Vivekananda actually provides a very sophisticated argument for the epistemic value of spiritual experience, which has been overlooked by all of these critics that have been you know, criticizing Vivekananda for, for not giving arguments. They've simply overlooked this argument. I can't go through the details now because again, I'll get into technicalities, but the basic idea is simple. Vivekananda asks, he says, what is the proof of God? He says, the proof of God is the same proof as the proof of this table before me. I mean, he, I think there must have been a table when he was lecturing at the time. So there's a table in front of me. He says, well, what is the proof that this table exists? I, the, the proof is that I perceive the table. And he says, the proof of God is exactly the same structurally. The proof of God is that many people throughout the world claim to have directly perceived God. And then the, that's not the end of the argument, that's the beginning of the argument. And then what Vivekananda says is that, look, now, most of us don't question the fact that, you know, that there's a table in front of us, that, that we sleep in a bed at night, that we walk to work or that we drive to work, that we own a vehicle, right? These are all, but how, what's our proof for any of these things? We, we take for granted an epistemic principle. The principle is whatever I perceive, constitutes justification for my belief that what I perceive exists in the absence of reasons for doubt. This is just a kind of like a ground level epistemic principle, which he takes to be uncontroversial. He says, if we didn't believe in this principle, I couldn't get up out of bed in the morning. I couldn't even act in the world because in order to act in the world, I have to believe that the world exists, right? And I believe that the world exists on the basis of my perception of the world. So in the same way, he says, if we accept this epistemic principle, which is relatively uncontroversial, 
then that equally applies to spiritual perceptions, spiritual experience. There's no reason not to exclude spiritual experience from the, from the applicability of this principle. And then there's a second principle, which is the principle of testimony, which he also argues is uncontroversial and that we employ in our day-to-day -day lives. It's just think about, you know, when we're in high school, for instance, in history class, we read history textbooks. We're reading about the history of Russia. Most of us, have, I still have never visited Russia, right? But I take for granted that what these history books are telling me about Russia are true. Why? What justifies me in, 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 what, you know, in believing that what these history books are telling me are true, right? The idea is that we, in our day-to-day -day lives, we have to take for granted this principle for, of testimony that, you know, in the absence of reasons for doubt, we should accept the testimony of others, basically. When I'm in a new town, I'm visiting a new town and I'm trying to find a store and I can't find it. I find someone who looks like a local. I ask that person, how do I get to so-and-so store? He goes, oh, just take a left and then take a right and then go straight and you'll, you'll find the store. What do I do? Do I first ask him what that person's credentials is? are and you know why should i believe him what what if he's lying to me we don't usually do that we take it for granted that he's telling the truth we follow what he says and lo and behold 99 times out of 10 we find out that he was telling the truth so on the basis of these two epistemic principles we've on the claims that if we accept the epistemic value of our sense experiences we're just as justified in accepting in accepting the epistemic value of spiritual experiences so that, that's the over i mean that itself was already technical but it gets it gets much thornier in the in the chapters five and six. Yeah, but I'd ask you to read the book to uh, get the details. Yeah, absolutely, we're just wetting people's appetites. A lot of um, yes. <laughs> uh, and also sharing um, sharing to public audience uh, the fruits of of this labor, right? The the, the ideas therein. Um, yeah, it, <laughs> there's so much that that fascinates me in what you you've just said and and. You know, I, I take a slightly different approach personally, but I, I completely understand um, the argument that Vivek and Nanda is making and that you highlight in your book. And it, it seems to me that that science is um, perhaps rightly limited to the empirical world of what can be perceived through the five senses. And I think the fallacy is that, um, the common fallacy is that that is all there is to perceive. <laughs> And that so spiritual truths and realities and experiences, they're not amenable to observation in an objective, demonstrable, repeatable manner. And so they sort of, uh, those who are not so inclined or unable to or unwilling to believe in them think they're, they're fantasy or fallacy. And those That's who right, can... Yeah. Yeah, in chapter four, I actually talk about this. I, I distinguish different forms of scientism. And the form that you're talking about is, is, is what's called by contemporary philosophers of science, ontological scientism. So the idea is the only things that exist are the things that are detectable or observable through the methods of empirical science, right? And I, I try to show that Vivekan actually argued against ontological scientism and other forms of scientism. Yeah, but please, I interrupted you. Uh, no, I was I was just sort of reflecting on this distinction, and and uh, in my personal view, it seems that uh, um, uh, perhaps a division of labor is in order such that that which is amenable to science should be left to uh, the, the machinations of science, um, and uh, spiritual experience falls uh, in a, in sort of a different order of. Uh, being or experience. And, 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 uh, yeah, I mean, this is also uh, one of the main views. It's defended by Stephen Jay Gould. It's called the view that religion and science are what he calls non-overlapping magisteria. Uh, but yeah, that wasn't Vivekananda's view. Vivekananda claimed that you know religion deserves the title of science, and he gives reasons for that. Yeah, and it's it's what's really interesting is that he his his debut is his his debut in on the world stage was where at the parliament the first parliament of world religions so it's really interesting that he that he's engaged in the work of understanding and studying religion um, in tandem with uh disseminating um his particular vedantic um view teachings if you will path great so was there was there any other aspect of the book that you wanted to touch on no i think that's all right i mean i should just mention that um it will be, it should be published um, on March 8th. Um, there's a slight delay in publishing due to the pandemic, 
but should be published by March 8th in the US first. And within hopefully a month or two at most, a South Asian edition of the book will be published in India and um, that will be available through Amazon India and Flipkart uh, for those of you who are in the South Asian part of the world. Uh, thank you so much, Raj. Fantastic. Thank you for being on the podcast today. Thank you. For those of you listening, we've been speaking with uh, Swami Medananda, um, who is um, a monk of the Ramakrishna order. We've been speaking about this brand new um, OUP publication, Swami Vivekananda's Vedantic Cosmopolitanism. Until next time, stay safe, stay sane, keep well, and keep contemplating um, this thing called religion. (laughs) Take care.